God, we need your help. Thank you for bringing us together at this particular time. Uh, we know that you call us to gather, you call us to read your word, you call us to sing, you call us to encourage one another, you call us to do a lot of, a lot of things corporately together. You call us into holiness. And I pray that we would uh, hear from you today uh, through, your, through your word, certainly not from me, through your spirit. And I pray for everyone in the room that you have them here for a certain time, certain purpose, whether they believe the Bible, whether they don't. We're just so glad that um, everyone is here today. So give me strength, God, and I pray that your power would be on full display. Amen. All right. Well, similar to Kayla, I'm at a loss of a good transition. I usually try to go for the introduction, you know, to kind of get us into the, the subject at hand and to lay the groundwork. And I'm just going to go to the awkward question right away. When's the last time that you have lied? When's the last time you lied? See, normally we would have an introduction and a little bit of groundwork in the word, and then we'd get to the awkwardness by the end. I'm just going to start up front. When do we lie? It's not that often that you might consider yourself lying, but I would, I would propose we lie a lot more than we think. And the main reason I say that is because I've just been convicted in texts and the way we communicate online. Every time I see someone say LOL, they're not laughing out loud. <laughs> Every time I text that little emoji that says I'm laughing with tears coming out, I am not crying of laughter. Okay, look through your text to your spouse. You're lying to your spouse when you say LOL and you're not laughing out loud. Everything is exaggerated in some of these forms of communication, yes? It, we're expressing something that's not really happening. That's lying. And I'm not here to just totally get rid of our text or anything like that, but it, it occurred to me. When's the last time you put R-O-T-F-L in your text? That means I'm rolling on the floor laughing. I've never done that before. Have you? I mean, it's got to be something pretty funny to be on the floor in laughter, and then you're going to start rolling around in laughter. Let's think about what we're actually texting people. LOL might happen, and some people might be serious. I asked this to my wife. Have you ever texted LOL and not done it? And she's like, I always text LOL if I've only done it, which is not that often. Here's the point. It's easy to exaggerate. It's easy to go to a place like Facebook or be in a communication of text and kind of exaggerate and have that be like almost like a different world where LOL is just kind of this normal thing. We don't even think about what we're saying, right? I, I came across an article or I came across a, just a text and uh, it linked me to a place. Instead of saying LOL, we should say fill in the blank, and people were filling all this in, because they're like, no, I actually don't laugh out loud. Instead of saying LOL, we should say S-M-E-A-S-M-H, I shut my eyes and shake my head. <laughs> if something's funny, you're just like, <laughs> I should also say B-A-T-M-N, that's the Batman, B-A-T-M-N, I breathe a lot through my nose. If something's funny, some of you just did it. <laughs> That's all you do. You don't laugh out loud. Here's the premise. There's a world online, and it's not true. There's a world online that we're expressing things that we wish were kind of 
There's, there's something in us, and we're expressing it in an over-exaggerated way. And not everything online, there's this virtual world in which we're exaggerating. And I'm kind of picking on the text thing, but this is truth, right? Everything that you see online is not true. It might be true, but it's exaggerated, or maybe people are withholding the true self. It's a curated, perfect world, oftentimes, is how we treat our social media. It's not full reality. And so what we want to do here in the church is say, yes, it's fun to be online. I'm online. I share pictures. We actually have discussion online. There's a time and a place to be online, for sure. But that's not reality. And we have to think about this sometimes. And this sermon is not about being online. This is a, a quick picture and a quick example of where we want to go. We want something bigger than our world. We're constantly almost escaping. We want to go meta. We want to go beyond what's really here. In fact, Facebook changed their company name to Meta in the last year. Why is that? They want to go beyond. They've changed their business model. They're not a company of just texting and poking each other. You guys remember when Facebook came out? You poked one another. It's like, what are we doing here? We're poking. Now we're LOLing when we're not really. This is a fake world. There's a fake discussion half the time. And I'm on there, and there's a good time and place to be there. But we have to see what's, are we using this stuff to escape? Because there is something in us to go meta. That's what we're going to talk about today. That's what's in 2 Peter. That's what's in 2 Peter. There is a propensity for us to know this world, this physical world, atoms smashing into atoms, just materialism is not all there is. Facebook has changed their name to Meta because they want to go into the augmented reality space. It's not just virtual reality, it's augmented reality, where you take the real world and you augment it. And we can get into all that, and that's going to be in the future, and we need to know how to talk about that. All I'm going to, with this weird introduction, is to say there is something that's beyond this world of paying taxes and getting a job and maybe dying with retirement. There is something that's beyond, and that's where we want to see our lives in Second Peter. So Second Peter, chapter 1. If you're already there, I think it's on the inserts as well. Let's go there, and I'll go to slide three here. There's a couple of lies that I want to talk about that we, we need to know how to think. There's a couple of lies that kind of creep into um, our culture. Our American culture has a lie. It says you are what you do. You are what you do. You get a job, and that's who you are. It's all about identity. You accumulate things, and that's who you are. Right? We're a very consumeristic culture, and we got to fight against this. Who are we? Identity is at the core of the Bible. Who are we? There's also um, a lie that can creep into the church sometimes um, through different implicit or explicit ways that says, if you put your faith in God, or if you are religious, or if you do these certain things, you will be rewarded in this life in a particular way, and life will be easier and better. And we have to define better. We have to define some of these things. So we want to fight against some of these lies that we encounter all the time and know the difference between using God as a means to an end or God as the end. And that's where I'm going today. Second Peter, 
chapter 1, verse 3. We're going to be in two verses today, and we're going to talk about meta things. It's not just a heady thing, it's like beyond us. And this is not an exercise in doctrine that we just need to know more things. It's actually the opposite of that. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. That's not even the end of the sentence. That's verse 3. There's a comma, and then it keeps going to verse 4. I'm going to tackle that in a little bit. But just know, verse 3 and 4 is a big run-on sentence. And we're going to tackle it. We're going to break it up. I'm going to read it again. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. If we believe the material world is all there is, and we've just become this species that kind of likes having children and kind of likes self-preservation, what does it mean to have glory and excellence? Where do those concepts come from? Let me just point out one thing about, about verse 3. It's book-ended. It starts and it ends with a call to God's work. His divine power has granted to us things. His divine power has granted to us things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us, he who called us to his own glory and excellence. So we believe that the Bible teaches God is calling a people and it's his power that, that is enacting on everything I'm going to talk about today. And we do interact with God. We're not just robots. We do have a role here. God has a story. We're in it. We're active. That's some of the mystery of God. But he has power and he has a call. Okay? Now, the main connection between this power in verse 3 and actually verse 2, if we would have started a verse earlier is knowledge, is knowledge. Through the knowledge of him who called us, even if I back up to verse two, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What does that mean? We're in such an informational era, the information age, the internet and being able to find things and search for them, that knowledge, if I just skim over this, feels like, we know about God. We can Google things. How do I enact his divine power? Through the knowledge of him. Agree. It says it. But that word knowledge, to know God, means something different than just knowing about God. This was clear in Jerry's message last week. The difference between Nicodemus being a religious leader and a higher up, very astute Old Testament scholar does not mean he knows God. He knows about God. And there's a huge distinction. And this is the distinction between religion and Christianity. To know about God or to know God. Because what follows up here, right, by which he has granted to us, excuse me, through the knowledge of him who called us to, to what? Called us to his own glory and excellence. There's something else than just knowing about God. He's calling us into his glory, into his excellence, into the meta, into something more. He's not calling us into 
prosperity here on earth. He's not calling us into a better job. That might happen. That might happen. But he's primarily calling us into glory and excellence. This is a big difference. Let me, let me illustrate just by some cross-references here. John 17, 3 talks about knowing God. Now, this is eternal life, eternal life. This is meta. This is beyond our lives here on earth. This is beyond our, what, however long this body is going to live, whatever number that is in years, probably under 200, you know, whatever, wherever medical advance goes, right? Whatever your number is, this is beyond that. Now, this is eternal life that you may know God. The only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Whom you have sent. You've called and you sent God. God has called. God has sent Jesus to know him. Second, First Thessalonians has a verse about this. Encouraging you, comforting you, urging you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into a better 401k. Whoops. Who calls you into meta. Who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. To this he called you later in 2 Thessalonians, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may, what? Share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is crazy. This is insane. To the mind that thinks of religion as a set of rules, and so then I will get benefit, I will do these things, and then I will be benefited, Christianity flips them around. He calls us into his own glory. He calls us into glory. Okay, I just want to keep doing this groundwork here in 2 Peter. We're going to get to a place where we can apply this. It feels, feels like it's like out there. It is meta. How do I apply having God's glory in my life? We'll get there. Just stick with me. Verse 3 has this call to glory. Verse 4 does as well. Let's go to verse 4. They actually mirror one another really well. Remember, this is a big, long, run-on sentence. Verse 3 and verse 4. Okay? Verse 4 says this, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. What are those promises? We'll speak about those. He has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that, what is the purpose of those promises? Why? Why do I care? so that through them you may become partakers in the divine nature. That is meta. So that you may become partakers in the divine nature, the beyond nature, the divine. This is where we start, by knowing what God calls us into. And if you're a non-Christian out there, I just want, I, I, this might sound ridiculous, and it did to me for a long time of my life. Even when I was around the church a lot, this is, this is not heady. This is the opposite of heady. I'm not trying to appeal to you knowing more stuff. I'm trying to appeal to about a foot down from your head, into your heart. There's something inside here that wants more. There's something inside here that wants more. Otherwise, why are we here? If life is about decent retirement, financial gain... Having kids, having them be somewhat respectable and behave well, have them stay out of, out of jail, 
holding a job. Why are some of us here? There's people in the room that have jobs, that have kids, with a certain amount of health, financial security. Why are we here? There's something inside of us that wants to go meta, and God gave it to us. God gave it to us. That's why we shouldn't be so surprised that the online world is looking at something beyond. There is something that we want. We do want more than this. We do want more than this, and Christianity speaks to why, and it's been around for a long time. Regardless of the technology, we're looking for more. Let's continue. Look at how similar uh, verse 3 and verse 4 are. They both talk about granting something to us. In verse 3, in verse 3, right? His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's granting life and godliness. He's explaining how this can happen. In verse 4, in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Okay, there's kind of a mirroring here. Life and godliness can also be expressed as his promises. He will grant us his promises. What are those promises? What are those promises? We need to read the Bible to know what God's promises are. His promise is to never leave us or forsake us. His promise is to send help because we need help. His promise is not to give us something if we measure up. His promise is, you haven't measured up, I will still grant you life. And of course, we're going to live differently after that, and that's a response. But his promise is to save and call a people into excellence and glory. This is meta. These are promises from God. What else? He has called us into his own glory. That's how it's said in verse 3. And how it's said in verse 4 is, I just, every time I read this, I can't get over how it's expressed. This is the ESV translation. So that they may become partakers in the divine nature. The divine nature. The beyond nature. The beyond world. That we don't just collide with in our bodies and our jobs and our cars. The beyond that we're made for. We're made for this beyond world. We're made for glory. And that's why we're so restless when we try to find it in other finite things. This is the gospel. I want to be very clear about what we believe God is up to in his story. It's to glorify him through saving people that don't deserve it. We believe that we're all born with a condition called sin. We're born bad. We're not born good. We're born bad. And he saves a people that turn to him. And he will turn them to him. This message, this story is about God, about how good he is, about he, how he's still just. And the reason he's still just by saving people that are sinful is because he put that consequence on his son. He sent his son, Jesus. Okay, I just want to be explicit about that. We believe that we've taken no part in this story until after he has saved us. He saved us, and we respond, and we believe, and there's interaction there. And we believe God is good. And Jesus' answer to Nicodemus last week was, I mean, what do we need to do to get saved? He's talking about this second birth. You need to believe. You need to believe that this is good. All right. 
Why is all this happening? What is the purpose of this story? What is this divine nature? I believe what God is calling us into and how it's expressed through the rest of this chapter and throughout all of the epistles, that divine nature, that divine nature is worship. And we can partake in it now. So there's a reality that we're going to die, this human flesh, this body's going to die, and we're gonna have, but we're going to have eternal life, right? Eternal life. Be saved from our sin for eternity. But there can be a divine nature that we partake in now. We can commune with God now. What does that mean? Growing up in the church, you hear these different words, right? We're, we're in a time of worship. We're in a time of song and praise and worship. And I think worship is it. Worship is the divine nature. It's what we're meant for. We're always worshiping something, and we're meant and called to worship God. And that's where we find life and excellence and glory. So worship, what is worship? I want to be just simple about it because I think it is a simple concept. It's hard to do rightly. Worship is an expression of adoration. Worship is an expression of adoration. What do we adore? We adore good things. We're basically, we're basically calling good things good when we worship God. And the best way to worship God is to call him good. So we can sing songs about his goodness, and that can be worship. We can open up the word and, and share it with others and basically express what we like. That's what social media is. What do you like? They have a like button. We're made to do this. We're made to share. They have a share button. We're made to say what's good. This is worship. This is worship. Now, we, we need to be able to not pervert that worship, not turn it around. So I believe worship is an end to itself. And what, what God is calling us into is to partake in the divine nature, the divine nature, which is to worship him. It's not a means to a different end. It's an end of itself. And there's many different ways we can talk about worship. I like how Leah explained. We're going to now worship through the word. We're not, songs just aren't worship and then we do other things. We can worship at our workplaces. We can display God's goodness. We can even be explicit and tell people about the goodness of God. There's many ways we can worship. And this is at the heart this is at the heart of the Christian life. So let's go to slide five. I want to spend a little time on why. Like, why would we worship? What is the point of God's story? We've already talked a little bit about revealing God's glory. There's something that's more valuable than anything else. So we're constantly worshiping things. We're constantly saying, and remember, worship is just expressing that something's good. Expressing that something's ultimately good, that would be worship. So when I put my job in front of God, I'm worshiping my job. When I put my own self, my own ego, my own idol of being understood or my own idol of being liked in front of what God maybe has for me, I'm worshiping myself. So there's different ways that we can worship. God tells us to worship him. Now, there's, 
I want to be careful about this because it's really easy to think about expressing and looking around the room and going, okay, how do we worship? Am I supposed to put my hands up? It's about, we can just go back into religion when it comes to how do we express ourselves towards God? In a room like this or out in the world or how many people have you talked to about Christ this week as opposed to last week? And you can just really get into this man-centered, bounded rules orientation about even worship. What does it mean to express what you like about God? What does it mean to express adoration? What rules are we following? And I just don't want to go there. I want us to be free to worship, to worship. But there is like, there's an elephant in the room that, that says like, everyone's made a little different. Like everyone has different personalities. So there's, not, there's no one right way to express worship in a, in a room like this when the song is going. Like there's just different, different temperaments, different personalities. And we need to be aware of how God has called us all to worship. Even in a calling on your life to be in ministry or in, in private sector or public sector, like we can worship we can tell people about God in our workplaces or even implicitly live out the gospel in different ways. And that might look different for someone in this workplace or this family or this call to singlehood as opposed to this other person. Right? So like the Bible is very clear on what's important. God's story, God's glory, to partake in the divine nature, to be brought into his glory and his excellence. And in the New Testament, it kind of turned from a, an Old Testament way of religious rules and kind of a come and see what we do, come and see, not in a perverted way, but like in the Old Testament, there's a lot of law, there's a lot of even cultural implications to the Jewish people expressing the goodness of God. And Jesus comes in the New Testament and kind of turns it around into a go and tell to different nations, to different cultures. And so it's actually very free and open to how we might put this into practice, into different cultures, into different countries, into different time frames, right? So there's a lot of talk about like what, what's the perfect way to reach people in our context, the size of the church, the way that the worship is. There's just freedom. And there is essentially God laying out what's valuable and we take from that and we can, you know, collect our resources. Like there's great resources and great power in the way that a larger church might reach the city. And then there's more nimble strategies that maybe a smaller church might, might reach the city, right? There's actually very few expectations on exactly how to do certain things. But there is an expectation to worship God corporately with people alone as well. This isn't a false dichotomy of do we gather together or do we go into the city? The New Testament, I think, is clear to gather together, encourage one another, read Acts and how that, that whole church family is encouraging one another, being built up by one another, and then they go out into the city. Okay, so it's, it's hard for us sometimes to see, like, what's the right way? We need to be in community with God. We need to know God. We need to be intercessing with the Father to know how do we worship in this day and age. It's not very clear. Let me, let me talk about two things with how we can do this. Through speaking and through singing. That's kind of my implication. Like, through speaking and through singing. Now, I think it's clear 
that God calls us to both of these things. And I'm not going to put a lot of boundaries about how and when and why and what volume the, the music needs to be at and what songs we need to sing when it comes to singing. But it's clear that God speaks. One of the primary ways that he brings the gospel to people is by speaking. It's by speaking. There's power in the voice of God. He created everything through his word, it says. So I want to challenge us that we can worship through speaking. We can worship through singing. And some of the some of the experience that everyone has had in the room can be all over the place, right? And it's kind of overwhelming for me to, maybe I'll just share my, my experience, but everyone here has a completely different or maybe different angle at where they grew up, how people have done this well, how people have done this not very well. There's dangers in speaking in front of people to gather acclaim to yourself. There's dangers in praying in front of people to, to gather acclaim to yourself, there's dangers and risk there, right? And Jesus speaks of that. He says, if you're going to draw attention to yourself, even just through prayer, it might as well just be alone in your prayer. He talks about that in Matthew. So we need to acknowledge, right? There's, there's also the human condition in how we do this stuff. And we can pervert the heart of God with why we do things the way that we do them. But I, do, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Speaking is a way that God has called us to share, to worship, even if people aren't receptive to it, it can still be an act of worship to express that God is good, that God is who we adore. So, I mean, there's, there's examples of speaking, right? There, we can share the gospel one-on-one. -on -one. We can come to a, a church service like this. Speaking is good. Speaking, going through what we actually believe the Bible says is good. It's good for correction. It's good for warning. It's good for essentially gathering people to a unified body. Sometimes I think that um, our culture, we think that we're being really innovative, but we're not. Like there's, there's kind of a movement, right? And like even, the, even what I'm doing right now, a message of like one to many. It's, it's effective, maybe. I mean, it's, there's a big push in, in, um, in education not to have too much time go by where you're just the teacher talking. And I agree with that. I was a teacher for a long while. And the longer someone sits and listens, the more risk there is for them to check out. And I agree with that. Right? But then there's also this push and like the, the whole TED Talk thing is blown up. There's like these 20 to 30 to 40 minute messages that have gone crazy. So like we have some value in someone sharing what they believe is true. And I'm not sharing what I believe is true at this point. We want to come as a church under the word of God and encourage one another, talk about it throughout the week. And I think that sometimes we just, we conflate our own personal preferences with what God has for us. And I do it all the time. And I just want the church to be a place where we don't come with our personal preferences. We sit underneath the authority of the Bible. We say, hey, what is church here for? What is the gospel? The gospel is food. I'm starving, and the gospel is food. I'm broken, and there's healing here. So my, my, when we come to our church community, when we come with a, a, a proper expectation of what we're doing here, it helps, it helps know like, where we put our preferences. You know, like if, if someone was in a car accident and they needed that paramedic, really badly to put them on the gurney and show them the way of life. 
They might not care how that paramedic was dressed. They might not care what, you know, what style of music that paramedic had in the ambulance on the way over. They know that they're there for life. There's, they're there for the beyond. We're here for eternal life. This is what we're made for. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? So I want us to get away from even the idea that preaching is just this too, right? Like sharing the gospel is what we're all called to do. This church body here is built up to equip the saints of the ministry. We should all be, if we're Christians, we should all be in a position to share somewhere. Jerry said it good a couple weeks ago that he said, God has ordained us to be a speaking culture. He's ordained people to know through other people telling. Other people telling. So that's an encouragement to us all. We can worship through our speaking. And lastly, I want to finish with singing. I want to finish with singing. Singing for me is something that you can come across in the church and you can just kind of assume it's part of a service like this. And we might not even question why we're doing this. Like, why is the Christian church singing? Why has this been part of the Christian church since thousands and thousands of years ago? Why are we singing? I mean, we could just read the words. And I believe it's because our affections and how God made us was for the beyond, was for the meta. And there's a few things in life that he's designed for us to kind of approach that barrier and get outside of ourselves, outside of our jobs and outside of our families even and outside of our normal everyday weekly life and say, how can I communicate with God? And we can communicate with him without a song. We can communicate with him with a prayer silently, out loud. There's a hundred different ways that God has called us to be in community with him and communion with him. But singing is something that has transcended all cultures. And why is it still around for us to do in a service like this? Why is there such an emphasis on the saints singing throughout the Bible? And why has it not been snuffed out as an inappropriate cultural norm that used to be decent, and now it's just passe. Everyone loves to sing. Everyone might not, not be good at singing. I'm not good at singing. But there is something that moves in the human heart when there is song. Why is that? God sings. See, God speaks, and he calls us to speak. And God sings. Our God is a God of song. He doesn't just command us to shout and praise him. He does do that. But he also sings. And he sings over us. And that is crazy to a world that's used to religion. When you have gods expecting people to follow rules, and so now they're worthy to be in their presence, and then you have this Christian God that says, you're not worthy you're dirty, you're sinful, but I will change you and I will sing over you. This is different. Let me read Zephaniah. 
Zephaniah, if I had more time and more, <laughs> if I had at least one or two or three or four weeks in a row where I could preach kind of more of a series, I'd go through Zephaniah. Zephaniah is three chapters, and the whole majority of the book is God being unpleased with injustice and being angry at sin. And then he comes to the last chapter, and there's a conversion of the nation, the nation. Now, they're talking about Israel, and in the New Testament, they blow up Israel to be the Israel, the church. So it's not just a race of people, it's whoever comes and believes, God's people. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. Why is our God like this? Why does our God sing over us? And why did he put it into us to sing? It's for his glory. This is a form of worship. There's a lot of different ways that we can worship. Singing is a primary way that we can worship. And it's because we are now partaking in the divine nature. God is a God of singing, and we can partake in that divine nature. And I know I, I hear my own skepticism go, well, you can sing about improper things. Correct. And we can also use this church building and even this pulpit and the word of God improperly as well. We can pervert anything that's good. We can pervert anything that's good. Singing and the way that we are able to commune and go beyond, go just touch the meta a little bit. Not fully. We don't have the right equipment yet to even be in the presence of God fully. That will come when he redeems the whole world and all is good and sin is no longer corrupting anything. But even to partake in the divine nature now, I believe singing is a big part of that. I believe singing is a big part of that because our God is a God of singing. Let me share some lyrics here with you. There are a few, I've been asking a couple weeks, for a couple weeks now, I've been asking people that I know, is there a song in your life that when you hear it, it just takes you? It takes you somewhere. It takes you to a memory, it takes you to a place, it takes you to an event, it takes you to a different time period. Is there a song that it just takes you somewhere? Tell me something, girl. Are you happy in this modern world? Are you happy just here in this world? Or do you need more? Is there something else you're searching for? Tell me something, boy. Aren't you tired trying to fill that void? Or do you need more? Ain't it hard keeping it so hardcore and keeping up that Keeping up your, you know, just keeping it so hardcore, like you got it all together. This hit me. I put up faces and walls to keep it hardcore, and I still have that void. Listen to this. I'm falling. In all the good times, I find myself longing for change. And in the bad times, I fear myself. I'm falling. In all the good times, I find myself longing for change. I feel that way. I have 
by the world standards, a lot of good. I am blessed. I got a wife that loves me. I got kids. I got a job that I've, that I love. And I still find myself longing for change. Why is that? Why do we need more? Why do I need more? I'm not satisfied until I am satisfied with something that's eternal. Something that is infinite. I've got a lot of finite things around me that are good. They're good. And we could turn good things into God things. Why are we not happy? Why do the richest people in the world still kill themselves? Why? Why are there voices in Hollywood that say, I wish everyone would become famous so they know how empty it can be? Why? I'm off the deep end. Watch as I dive in. I'll never meet the ground. Crash through the surface where they can't hurt us. We're far from the shallow now. This is a song written by Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper that speaks to the human heart. We want to be in the deep end. We want to plunge. We have an infinite void. We don't want to be in the shallow end, even if it's a good, healthy, shallow end. We have an infinite need for God's infinite glory. That's what the Bible's about. That's what the Bible's about. That doesn't mean you throw away all the good things in your life. That means you know they're good and they're not God. And God can only satisfy because his promises say, I will never leave you. Your good things might leave you. I will never leave you. So do we have a response to that? Do we have a response to that void? Aren't you trying to fill that void? Here's Psalm 103.15. Similar Start. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. That sounds nice. Grass and flowers. For the wind passes over it and it's gone. That's what this world is. That's what our lives can be. Decent. There's nothing bad with grass. There's nothing bad with flowers. Gone. The wind passes over it and it's gone and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. It is infinite for those who are in fear or in awe of him and his righteousness to children's children. This is a song about how fickle our world is, even good things like grass and flowers. The wind comes and it's gone. Even the good things in my life could leave. So we need something steadfast. We believe that God... And Jesus sending his son is the infinite glory that we can partake in. Let me leave you with two stories real quick. Two stories about songs to encourage us. In Uganda, there started to become essentially months and months, and it turned into years of Christian persecution. And there was a, there was a successor. There's a king, King Mwanga. Mwanga became increasingly angry as he realized that he, his first converts put loyalty to Christ above the traditional loyalty to the king. Martyrs began in 1885. He resolved to wipe out Christianity altogether. The martyrs produced a result entirely opposite of Mwanga's intentions. The examples of these martyrs who walked to their deaths singing hymns and praying for their enemies. 
They're praying for enemies and they're singing hymns. That seems a little opposite of how I might react. (laughs) If my family was under attack or if my life was under attack, I hope I could be like this one day, singing hymns and praying to their death. Within a few years, the original handful of converts had multiplied many times over because they were so inspired by the bystanders that began to see what happened to those martyrs. The martyrs had left an undeniable impression that Christianity was truly African in that context, not simply the white man's religion, because the missionaries were white at that time that came over. So they took, they took it for themselves. They started to tap into their own culture. Most of the missionary work was now carried out by Africans rather than the white missionaries. And Christianity spread steadily. Uganda is now one of the largest percentage of professed Christians in the nation of Africa because of martyrs that sang to their deaths. It's a backwards way to fight. And I know one pastor talks a lot about fighting for joy. I think it's a good way to think of it. When we don't have joy, we fight for joy. One of the ways you can fight for joy is for singing, through singing. I've had this experience in my life, and I'll leave you with this. I got a phone call from a doctor in this past year, and I thought it was going to be an easy phone call, and I thought I already knew the result. And honestly, if you would have been on that phone call, you probably wouldn't think it's that big of a deal. But I was banking on it being differently. And it touched a nerve. It touched an idol of mine. And my health wasn't on the line like I was going to die. But it was just, it wasn't the call I thought I was going to get. And I was in my car. And I was at a leadership conference with the elder elders here down in Madison. And I was in my car. And I even had someone pray over me that morning. And I thought I was going to get the call that day. And I did get the call that day. And I thought it was going to be different. And I sat there and I said, I don't even want to go back in. I just want to drive home. But we all know Jerry won't be able to walk home. He's down in Madison. The other elders are down in Madison. He can't walk home. But I literally just wanted to drive away. I did not want to be around Christians. I did not want to be around leaders. I did not want to be around a church. So I just walked back. I thought I'd sit in the lobby. And then I heard the songs. And there was a room full of Christians that I know have pain in their life too. And the men and the women in that room singing brought me back in there. And I figured I'll just sit down next to my other leaders here and we'll wait for this day to be done. And I had to listen to people sing about God. And I had to look at the words and see truth about God. And it's very powerful. And eventually I started singing, and that's very powerful too. So there's just freedom. Listen to the people of God encourage you through song or sing yourself. God has made us a people who sing because he sings. This is how he's made us, for infinite joy. And I stink at singing. I'm like a C minus. And that's not the point. I have grown to know this depth of who God is through singing. And I've probably belabored the point by now, but I know that we're about to sing a song. And it starts by saying, the Lord bless you, which means be blessed. Be happy 
Be joyful. That doesn't mean everything in your life is going great, but God is singing over you. This will be a key marker of eternity. This will be a way that we will worship God and he will express his divine nature. So let's partake in it. I'm gonna pray and we're gonna sing. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your power. I pray that I pray that my words would just fall flat if they're from me and if they're from you, that people would actually remember them. God, give us a grid for who you really are and what you really desire of us. I pray that we would know you in the way that you call us to know you, in the way that you call us to your glory, in the way that we have deep, eternal desires and that we can only put them in you. God, thank you for this time. I pray that we would encourage one another, however that is. I pray that your spirit would move. Amen.